let's start by praying, huh? Jesus, um, we're really thankful for your word. I'm really thankful for your word, Lord. Um, I'm really thankful for your spirit. Uh, I'm really excited uh, about what you want to speak to us tonight, Lord. Um, please make me faithful to your word. Um, please, Spirit, would you make us attentive to your movement in our hearts, Lord? Um, as we hear what, what Paul had to say um, to the Colossians 2,000 years ago and um, hear what you want to say to us tonight through those same words. Um, thank you for your presence with us. Thank you that you haven't left us as orphans. Thank you that we have this wonderful family um, to, so that we don't have to figure out how to follow you on our own, Lord. So we love you a lot. In your name, amen. Well, my name is Rachel. Hey, hi. Nice to meet you, or perhaps see you again. Um, so I'm on staff with CCF. This quarter we've been marinating in the book of Colossians. So this is what, like week five, right? Week five of the quarter? You should, you should know this. I'm pretty sure it's week five, so we'll go with that. So it's week five, and today we're going to start with chapter two. So <laughs> we've spent the last four weeks, well, really three weeks, in chapter one. So we're, if, if we were meat, like actually marinating, we'd probably be starting to taste pretty good right now. So, um, yeah, we're delicious. Um, here, here's an idea. For, for those of you who are, like, wondering maybe what to do um, in, your, in your time with the Lord, you're, you're looking at this book, like, where should I even start? A great place to start would be in Colossians and just follow along with what we've been talking about in the, in the different sermons so far. Um, because, really, I could preach 12 sermons tonight <laughs> on just our text for today. I'm not going to. I'm just going to preach one, <laughs> hopefully. Um, <laughs> but, but, um, but there's a lot in these texts, in these verses. So I'd encourage you in your, in your own time with the Lord to reflect on them, to meditate on them, to listen, to see what God might have to say to you in all of these, these different verses. So chapter two this week, what have we seen so far? Well, so far we've seen Paul's prayer for the Colossians in Jeff's first sermon. We've seen Paul sing Christ's praises, reminding us, reminding the Colossians and reminding us that Jesus alone is supreme, and so we should respond to him in faith alone. And Paul has reminded us and the Colossians that allegiance to Jesus demands our whole lives. So we've covered a lot of ground in just one chapter. What's today? Today, we get into the drama I know. I don't mean like high school love drama, although, you know, that would be kind of fun, but it's not that. Um, it's kind of more like a dramatic movie, kind of like Apollo 13, which is my favorite movie. Okay. Um, and so Paul is kind of, you know, where the main actors like have a major problem that needs to be solved and everything will, f or everything will fall apart. Remember? Houston, we have a problem. It's like that. That's what Paul, that's what. Paul is saying tonight, drama. For the first time in the letter, Paul is directly addressing the drama that's playing out in Colossae. And so tonight we're going to take a look at that drama. What is the problem in Colossae? What does it mean for us? What is the solution to this problem? 
And what does, what does that tell us about our overarching question for this quarter? What does it mean to mature in Christ? So we're going to start in Colossians chapter 2, verse 4. And Paul writes, I tell you this, that is, the reason that I've said everything up to now, which tells you everything that he's said up to now is important and it has bearing on what he's about to say. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. So for the, in this text, for the first time in the letter, Paul is directly addressing the problem in Colossae. In two verses, Paul warns the Colossians, uh, in four verses, Paul warns the Colossians two times, don't be deceived by fine-sounding arguments, don't be taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophy. This is the drama of the letter. The church is facing a major problem. In Colossae, there's this mixture of different spiritual worldviews around them that are all borrowing from each other. A little bit of paganism, the idea that you gain spiritual wisdom from the demigods. If you just follow certain rules and regulations, if you treat your body harshly, if you know the secret passwords, then the demigods will grant you favor and grant you spiritual knowledge. Um, they'll they'll uh, grant you uh, favor in your, in your day-to-day life. Mixed in with that is a little bit of Judaism. The idea is that you have to do certain things to be close to God. Um, You have to follow the law. You have to be circumcised. You have to observe certain holy days. Um, Basically, you need to participate in special ritual to be close to God. But these things aren't separate in Colossae. They're all mixing together. And so as the surrounding culture is looking at the church in Colossae, they're kind of scoffing at them. It's really foolish to choose just Jesus alone, they're saying. You'd you'd better cover all your bases. You'd better add some stuff to following Jesus. The surrounding culture is saying, Jesus isn't powerful enough to really set you free. He's just another demigod. In fact, he's not really even in charge of the universe. So why make him in charge of your lives? And, and so uh, with all of this surrounding the Colossians, they're, they're starting to doubt a little bit their allegiance to Jesus alone. Wondering, maybe the surrounding culture is right. In Colossae, the church in Colossae, adding to Jesus, adding these other practices, these other religious beliefs, would be a major blow to their young and developing faith. So Paul's warning, in essence, to the church in Colossae is don't be deceived by any philosophy or worldview that diminishes who Jesus is, that says Jesus alone isn't enough. 
those other worldviews, those other philosophies will only bring you into bondage. Only Jesus sets you free, Paul reminds the church. So what does this mean for us? We don't live in a culture that encourages us to get circumcised to show our devotion to God. We don't live in a culture that tells us to abuse our bodies so that the demigods will give us special spiritual knowledge. We're not surrounded by the same philosophies and fine-sounding arguments as the Colossians were. But what fine-sounding arguments, what hollow and deceptive philosophies in our culture that diminish our view of Jesus might Paul warn us about? I think these can be hard for us to see because the culture is the water that we swim in. It's always around us. We don't, we're surrounded by it, so it's tough for us to step back and take stock of what we sometimes naturally believe is true. So this week, you may want to reflect a little bit more on this question. What cultural assumptions do I buy into that diminish my view of who Jesus is? In my prayers and reflections preparing for tonight, I noticed two philosophies in particular that are prevalent in our culture that I think Paul might warn us about. The first is human effort. The idea that if I just work hard enough, I can do anything. This kind of idea, this perspective, has, has a long history. It comes out of the Enlightenment, out of the Industrial Revolution, when, when human effort was, um, you know, overcoming obstacles in the world. Now we don't need candles to see anymore. We've invented the light bulb. Human effort can perfect the world, was the idea. Uh, this summer, I, last summer, I, uh, I listened to a class called Christianity and the Modern World. And the book that I read for the class, it said, contemporary society and culture so emphasize human potential and human agency that we're for the most part tempted to go about our daily business in this world without giving God much thought. Indeed, we're tempted to live as though God did not exist, or at least if his existence didn't practically matter. So I read this sentence, and it made me pause. In my daily business, do I give God much thought? Or do I think, I can do this by myself? For example, how many of you had a test this week? Raise your hand. Right on. Okay. It's kind of midterms time, yeah? So think about this. What role did God play in your test? Did, you, did he cross your mind at all while you were taking the test? Or were you just trying the best you could to remember the information on your own? Did you praise God for your mind, acknowledging that he's the one that creates our minds, our abilities to learn, to remember, to study? Did you pray for help on your test? I, right on. Some of you did. It's a good thing to think about, though. <laughs> Um, I used to think for a long time I, I didn't pray when I, when I took tests because I was like, that's cheating. <laughs> it's, it's not. <laughs> God made our minds. We, we can't do these things without him. We are completely dependent 
on God. If in the middle of the test he were to take his hand away from us, we wouldn't be able to finish our test at all. We are completely dependent on him. So think about that in the things that you do in your day-to-day lives. Are you doing it by yourself or are you doing it with God's help? Because when we get to think, when we start to think highly of our own abilities, when we begin to depend on our own effort, we lose sight of Jesus' supremacy. We depend on ourselves instead of depending on Jesus. Maybe we even wonder, would God really even want to help me out on my test? Why would he want to be involved in the ordinary, the mundane things of my life? Maybe we even wonder if he can help us out. I see this in my prayers in particular. The other week, I was sitting with a friend, and she was telling me about conflict that was going on in her family. And my first thought, this is Rachel being honest, my first thought was, what can I say to make it better? How can I help? How can I fix it? And my second thought was, Maybe we should pray, but I'm not sure that would really make a difference. I'm not sure that God could really bring reconciliation in that relationship. Do you ever think that? Think where your first thought is, how can I fix this? And then just look at Jesus once your own efforts have failed. When you're talking to people in Red Square, who are you depending on? Are you depending on yourself to come up with a clever answer? Or are you depending on Jesus to help you out? When you're counseling a friend who's going through a hard time, who are you depending on? Are you depending on your own cleverness, your own effort? Or are you depending on God to help you out? Maybe you're like me. And you sometimes wonder if Jesus is really powerful enough to answer your prayers. You wonder, can he really heal me? Is he really reshaping me into his image? Will this temptation that I struggle with ever be gone? Does Jesus really make a difference in our world? Sometimes our picture of ourselves and our effort is so big that our picture of Jesus begins to contract and shrink. It becomes our responsibility to fix the problems in the world, and we depend on ourselves instead of depending on Jesus' power. What's the problem here? What happens when we continue to live this way? We make ourselves like Atlas from mythology, who carried the world on his back. It's our responsibility, we think, to fix and to make and to do. No wonder we're so driven and anxious and exhausted. We're holding the world on our shoulders. We're captive to the demands of this world, having a heavy weight on our back. And we're frustrated by our limitations, by the things that we can't fix. Tempted to despair with the things that we can't control. Natural disaster and mental illness and death. That is the hollowness of human effort. We're no match against these things. The second uh, area that I think Paul would warn us is individual freedom. The idea, let me make my own decisions. 
Let me do what's good for me. No one can infringe on my individual freedom. I can pursue my own personal happiness. In this perspective, not only is God irrelevant to day-to-day life, but in, in this perspective, when we're um, depending on our own individual freedom, we don't even want his reach to extend into our day-to-day life at times. We think that Jesus won't actually do a good job taking care of my life. That he doesn't actually know what's best for me. And when we believe this, we diminish his lordship, his creatorship. We forget that by him all things were created, whether things in heaven or on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, we forget that all things were created by him. We think sometimes, even though Jesus created my life, I don't think he really knows the best way that my life should function. I know better. So we doubt or we ignore or we avoid Jesus' words about the best way to live. And instead, we live our own preferences and our own expectations. In both the big ways and the small ways in our lives, we disbelieve him. How? How do we see this playing out? Confrontation. We disbelieve at times that Jesus meant it and even thinks it's good to confront one another about things. But we avoid it and we make excuses and we think, well, he didn't really mean it in this situation. We disbelieve him when he said that we should confess our sins one to another that we may be healed. We think it's enough to just confess it to him, but it's too shameful to confess it to another person. We don't really believe that bringing it into the light, that talking about it with another person really will set us free from these things. We even disbelieve him about things that we want to believe. When he says, don't worry about tomorrow, we have such a hard time believing this and struggle to give up control. This is a particularly difficult struggle in a culture that elevates human effort and human agency. We want to control things. In this worldview, individual freedom, we become enslaved to ourselves, to our own appetites, to our own preferences. We're our slave drivers. My individual happiness begins to matter more than the effects of my choices on my friends and family. That is the hollowness here. We're free to chase our own appetites. We're free to use others for the sake of our own gain. And then we find ourselves used in the same way the next moment. Have you ever been hurt by someone in their pursuit of their own happiness? But then let's turn the finger around. Have you ever hurt anyone in the pursuit of your own happiness? The philosophies surrounding our culture are different than the Colossians, but the result is the same. Ultimately, we strip Jesus of his power and authority 
but instead of freedom, we find ourselves enslaved to our own appetites and efforts, captive to hollow philosophies, instead of freed by them. So that's the bad news. That's Paul's warning to the Colossians, and I think warning to us. But there's good news, too. The thing that I appreciate a lot about Paul is that he doesn't just say, guard against this, without giving us any tips about how to guard against it. And the tips that he gives the Colossians are really helpful for us, too. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised in putting off the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. As Jeff would say, Paul sings. In response to the religious buffet surrounding the Colossians that diminish Jesus, that strip him of his power, Paul elevates Jesus' power and authority through a series of three images that remind us, look at what Jesus is able to do. Look how he draws us out of the hollow and enslaving philosophies. Hands down, Jesus has the victory. This is true Christian maturity. The first image that Paul uses to paint this picture of Jesus' victory is the image of circumcision. Doesn't it give you a lot of hope when you realize, when you read the words, in him you were also circumcised? Maybe not so much in our culture, right? <laughs> For us, this is kind of a distant image. But to the Colossians, it would have made sense, especially since circumcision was one of those kind of buffet elements from Judaism floating around in Colossae. So circumcision to the Jews uh, marked them as people set apart for God. So what's going on here when Paul says, in him you were circumcised? Paul's saying that in Jesus you were set apart for God. It's not the act of physical circumcision that sets you apart for God. It's the spiritual circumcision done by Jesus. And that circumcision wasn't done by human hands. We might hear this as human effort isn't enough to set me apart for God. It was done by Jesus. Jesus' effort sets me apart, not my own. This is good news. This lifts the world off of our shoulders. We should breathe a sigh of relief that our position to God 
doesn't have anything to do with our ability and sweat and effort, but depends wholly on Christ. Yeah, I know, it's exciting. It gives me the tingles. Not only, though, so the good news keeps getting even better. Not only, though, does Jesus set us apart through spiritual circumcision, but our whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when we were circumcised in Christ. Essentially, we're not captive to our appetites anymore. Jesus sets us free from our drives, from our bent towards living for ourselves at the expense of others, and he gives us fullness of life. This is a similar to the picture that Paul paints of baptism. The image that he uh, presents is one of going under the water, being buried with Christ in his death, and then raised, so experiencing life in Christ. If you're curious about this image of baptism, check out baptism class. But Paul is saying that that same thing that circumcision does, where we're no longer captive to our appetites, that's what's done by Christ in baptism too. That Jesus has done away with our individual drives and appetites. He's given us new and full lives, recreated us through the power of God. Not through us choosing to be baptized. Not through our effort in baptism. Through the power of God. Now this image of, of being dead and then being raised to life might be a kind of distant image for some of us. I've talked to people on campus who, who are like, oh yeah, I get that, so zombies, right? No, 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 that's not what it is because zombies just like reanimated flesh. This is being 100% actually dead to 100% actually alive and in fact even more alive than you had been before. Some authors will paint a really beautiful picture that right now we're like shadow people, but when we've been raised to life in Christ, at last we're finally tangible people. We're not shadow people anymore, but everything is bigger and fuller and richer. And Paul is saying, all of this has been done for us, in us, through the power of God. What our effort could never do, where our own effort can never defeat death and our enslavement to our appetites falls hollow, God defeats death and gives us new life free from slavery through his power. Only God could cancel the charge of our legal indebtedness or the written code that stood against us. When you've violated the commands of the eternal one, of the supreme being of the whole universe, the one who created all things, how can you, in your own effort, ever please him again? The Colossians tried with their sacrifices and their special spiritual words to please God. But it was never enough. But here, in Jesus, we find a God who himself has taken away this list of treasonous acts that stood against us, listing all the reasons why God should punish us. But it no longer stands against us. Not because we didn't do anything wrong. No, it's because God has taken all the philosophies that stand against us, accusing us in our human effort, in our denial of God's power and authority, in our selfishness and in our individualism, and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing 
over them by the cross. To the Colossians, the cross seemed like the ultimate failure, the ultimate show of Jesus' lack of power. You see, in war, a victorious king would take the conquered king and would parade him through the city streets, having him beaten and stripped and executed so that the whole city could see that he was the victorious king, that he had conquered his enemy. Does that sound familiar? A king being beaten and stripped and executed. That is what it looked like was happening on the cross. It looked like Jesus had been defeated. It looked like he was the defeated king. Remember the sign that was over his head on the cross. Here is the king of the Jews. But, Paul says, it was the opposite. The cross that seemed like Jesus' defeat was actually his triumph. On the cross, Jesus stripped and beat the powers that stood against us and triumphed over them on the cross. Jesus was the one who led the victory parade. He was the victor. He was not the defeated king. He marched the defeated philosophies and powers through the city streets. He was not the one who was conquered. He was the victor. Isn't that good news? <laughs> no wonder it's called that. Paul elevates Jesus back to his high position, and we should do the same, remembering that Jesus is not impotent and powerless in our day-to-day lives, that he has victory. So, tonight, I think that Jesus wants to lead a victory parade in our lives. So tonight, we're going to take some time to pray together. To pray for the places that we think Jesus can't touch. The places in our lives that we don't think can ever be healed. The situations and relationships that we don't think can ever be different. The attitudes of our hearts that we don't think will ever be reshaped. To pray for the things that we have tried to fix and that we haven't been able to fix, but bring them to the one who can fix them, to the one who leads all other philosophies and powers in a victory parade. He is victorious over them. So, if there's a way that you want Jesus to heal your life, physical healing, mental or emotional healing, there's a situation in your life that you want Jesus to heal, that you want him to touch with his power and his victory, then just stand up. You can stand up whether you call yourself a Christian or not. And as people stand, would a few people around them gather and lay hands on them. And in these groups, pray for Jesus' healing and victory in your lives. For those of us who aren't praying for someone near us, pray generally for those who are praying or who are receiving prayer. 
Uh, for those of you who aren't praying, you can also spend time reflecting on the questions on this screen. That this, this is a holy moment. This is a moment where Jesus wants to bring his power and his victory here, today, tonight, right now. Remember what Daniel was saying? Do we expect God to show up? This is a moment of expectation. This is a moment where God will show up. Jesus, um, all of these, all of these prayers, God, um, we we trust you, Jesus, to take care of of our lives, God. Um, we in our lives want to elevate you back up to your high position, to acknowledge that all of these things in our lives that you do have control over, that you. Um, through your mighty power, can bring healing and freedom and do bring healing and freedom, Lord. So um, as we continue to pray and worship you, God, uh, would your spirit come in power and in might uh, to change lives tonight, right now, to change lives over the next week and the next month and the next year, Lord. You are fully capable of so much more than we can ever ask or imagine, Jesus. Help us protect us from philosophies and worldviews around us that would diminish who you are in our lives. Move us often to praise you, to cry out to you, to depend on you. Thank you, God, that you set us free from everything that would try to enslave us, um, to tell us that we don't belong to you, Lord. Um, you are mighty. You are the creator. Um, and we, we love you. Amen. <laughs>